0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tjaša Zeit, and this is the first part of a special four-episode series about doctors who left full-time clinical practice to develop new solutions for healthcare improvement. As Faces of Digital Health is a podcast exploring global perspectives, you are going to hear from doctors from different countries, more specifically the US, UK and Spain. I've been noticing during this research that a lot of doctors going into entrepreneurship are trying to solve systemic issues plaguing healthcare. You will hear UK surgeon Owen Hughes explain how he started building a company and platform that connects GPs to specialists to enable GPs to refer patients more accurately. Consequently, patients can receive better care already on the primary care level, which makes the work of specialists much more efficient once patients reach them, making specialists and GPs much more satisfied with their work.
1: Specialists were just being honest and saying, you know, what, what is actually in it for us to help our colleagues in the community? They've gone from that position, having started to use that technology to be the biggest advocate.
0: Because for the first time, It's allowed them to get control back of their work because they know how how valuable their expertise is and they don't want to waste time moving around the hospital or seeing patients uh, in a setting that's not right for that patient. And now what they're able to do is, is direct patients to where they can be most efficient and manage that patient in the quickest time and the best time for the patient,
1: but also for them as a service.
0: You will also hear a GI pediatric specialist Michael Doctor from Boston's Children's Hospital explain how he designed a task management app to enable better coordination of healthcare and administrative workers around all bureaucracy and care entailed in the treatment of every patient. Uh, we often operate in silos in healthcare and so how do we you know knock those silos down and work together and get on the same page and that's not just internal teams, but that's, you know, how does the healthcare system work better together to take patient care across the many stakeholders in, in the ecosystem?
1: Could we be the platform that helps all those sort of disparate players work together for better patient care? That's our hope.
0: And from Spain, William Serra. William Serra is a serial entrepreneur coming from a family of doctors. And by that, I mean that his father, Mother, grandfather and great-grandfather were doctors, which made it easy for Guilhem to study medicine given his familiarity with the profession. Besides medicine, he studied math, and during his medical studies discovered that, for him, medical practice was actually boring. Innovation, research, changing how we see uh, medicine, how we can solve problems in medicine every day. The question is: You, as a medical doctor, you see the same patients every day. You see the same the same problems every day. You cannot have time, for example, for innovation. You cannot have time for for being with your patient actually today. So it was like, okay, you have 30 patients every day, different patients, same problems, same place, uh, same career path. The 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 everyday practice. It's not you have to have a stomach for it to 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 be because it's not like we. Uh, you will have a great progression in terms of a professional path. So Guillem went to found what is today called a WhatsApp healthcare app connecting doctors and patients in Spain, South and Latin America. More about that in the interview, which will be published in the upcoming weeks. So if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast so we will automatically be notified when the mentioned discussions will be published. Because today, we will start with someone many in digital health community would describe as one of the top authorities in digital health. Daniel Kraft is the Founder and Chair of Exponential Medicine, a program with the goal to un-silo thinking and unleash cross-disciplinary innovation across healthcare by bringing together thought leaders and forward-thinking clinicians and innovators to explore potentials to reshape health and medicine with technology daniel is a stanford and harvard trained physician scientist inventor and innovator with over 25 years of experience in clinical practice biomedical research and healthcare innovation we discussed his journey from the medical practice to digital health his mission to turn his website digital.health into a medical digital health formulary where doctors could search for clinically approved and reliable digital health solutions to prescribe to their patients. Daniel also shared his view of COVID-19 related innovation, some broader societal problems that are arising in the US because of imposed measures to manage COVID-19. We also talked a bit more about how to improve medication adherence in patients with chronic conditions and comorbidities that take five or more different pills daily. The idea behind his company in telemedicine is to provide patients with a device that would keep all medications of a patient in separate cartridges and would produce only one pill the patient would need to take. The pill structure would be based on the patient's daily various health measurements supported by AI analysis. A lot of exciting topics. So enjoy the discussion and find the recap of the show on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. The direct link to this episode is in the show notes as is the link to digital.health and exponential medicines website. <laughs> Okay, so Daniel, uh, you're very well known in the digital health community as the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine, which is a special healthcare innovation program running under Singularity University. However, um, you actually have 25 years of experience in clinical practice. So what year did you actually stop working actively in clinical practice?
1: Well, I'm still licensed as a doctor, boarded up in internal medicine pediatrics. I did fellowships in hemoglobin. Until a few years ago, I was doing uh, attending at UCSF in pediatric bone marrow transplant, which is sort of my specialty area. It's hard, and I, then I got so busy with things at Singular University, exponential medicine, startups. It's it's hard to do these, you know, three or four week blocks on service. Um, but I still like to do you know some volunteer elements. Uh, in the past, i have done a fair amount of international uh, medical work from from uh, Nepal to Nicaragua. Um, So I think it's important for all of us who are trying to innovate in the clinical space to keep a touch point in the clinical world as well, not just prescribing our friends and family uh, azithromycin or, or, uh, to the president, uh, uh, hydrochloroquine.
0: <laughs> um, I agree. Uh, you did, to a certain extent, ruin my next question on a scale of 1 to 10, to which extent you don't miss dealing with electronic healthcare records. Well,
1: I grew up in the era of the transition. So when I was a medical student and resident at Mass General, we still used to handwrite our notes in pen and paper. Uh, I was one of the very early adopters. I had the Hewlett Packard 200LX little uh, pocket computer. And, and I would sometimes type my notes on that and, and print them out and put them in the paper chart. And then uh, when I was a fellow uh, at Stanford, there was a bit of a transition to, to Cerner and later uh, Epic, which are, you know, there's something just beautiful about being able to open the, the old fashioned dig- analog book and look back at who wrote the orders in their handwriting. Um, so I don't necessarily miss all the focus now on computer time and documentation that really has taken away. I think well-described from the joy of medicine and even the important elements, which is the human side, and actually not just the the billing, which is really what the electronic medical records are, are built on. They're not really based for care. They're based on on records and, and billing codes. I don't miss that component at all. And I'm, I think I used the word epic fail, uh, that the entire uh, electronic health record uh, industry has sort of instilled in that it's sort of Across purposes with what we really want to be doing, which is real care, not just uh, electronics.
0: What are your initial memories of that transition when computers started to be used more regularly? Um, what frustrated you most? What kind of problems do you see that are still most uh, present in the current clinical practice? Because especially in the US, we already see many innovative approaches from using um, voice technology supported with AI to take those notes and using either uh, screens uh, in the doctor's room so the doctor has the connection with the patient. What's your experience of that uh, first contact with with technology and how it then
1: evolved? Well, I think we can think of it in different ways. Uh, When I was a resident at Mass General, Uh, And I started out with this little sort of book of, you know, how to admit and rule out myocardial infarction patient with sort of rules of thumb, because we'd handwrite all our orders. Now you can sort of press a button, hit the rule out MI order set or diabetic ketoacidosis. So the sort of old school piece, when you go from your brain to your hand to writing the orders, gave you a whole different context about what you're doing, kind of a time to think, to adjust, by the end of my residency, uh, we had more of these sort of printed out protocols. Here's the rollout MI protocol, and you sort of check the boxes. And that's been, you know, amplified up even more in the digital age when you can cut and paste the medical history, you can sort of cut and paste into different order sets. And I think there might be something lost in the ability to cognify, think a little more deeply. And also it takes, you know, sometimes better and sometimes worse, some of the autonomy from the clinician, it now might be uber-measured. Wow, you deviated from the quote-unquote protocol for you know 10% of your patients. Um, maybe that was a really smart deviation that really matched what that patient needs. Maybe it didn't fit within the cost constraints of that hospital you prescribed a drug that wasn't the lowest cost on the formulary. So I think there's a plus and minus to all this. We can, in some ways, better standardize some elements of healthcare where there's real data that really informs uh, where things can go, but at the same time, it can be a, a, a bit of a, a flip side to over-protocolizing um, things.
0: You just reminded me of an article that said that all this copy-pasting actually causes that the doctor in the end, when he looks at the patient notes, might forget completely what he really thought about that patient. Or as Eric Topol mentioned about abbreviations that are used within normal limits actually can mean we didn't even look at something.
1: Yeah. WNL or uh, sob it doesn't mean just shortness of breath. <laughs> um, in some c- certain contexts, so you know, there is something about again that hand to brain to to paper piece that has some power. I mean, I think it's been studied when a medical student or whatever st- you know writes notes. And I remember studying for MCATs and things with cue cards and, and medical boards that would wire your brain differently than when you type notes on your on your laptop or watch a video rather than being in the class or having a real-time contextual discussion. So I think people learn differently. Uh, I think some of these digital tools can be uh, optimized um, uh, and we can learn how we learn. And again, that can be personalized. just like personalized medicine. It's not one size fits all. But there's definitely, uh, I think, potential challenges in our sort of digital age where things can be too dumbed down. Yes, we can be upskilled, but if we simplify things too much, uh, you know, everyone... You know, the potential is really to pull down the individual's patients, you know, omics, digital exhaust information, socio genome, microbiome, and, and, and then hopefully use some of the digital layers to put that into context. So we really have actionable information that can really make a difference without overwhelming the clinician or the healthcare system, uh, and also aligning um, how we want to care for folks in the you know, immediate and long term.
0: Uh, how far do you think we are with that? You know, creating, um, as you called it in one of your sp- speeches, uh, the digitome
1: I mean, we're, we're sort of already there. I mean, but just put it in context, it was only uh, 2009, 11 years ago, that the first Fitbit came out, right? That was sort of the very, maybe one of the earliest connected devices, did very basic steps in sleep. Now we have, you know, thousands of different sort of connected wearables and now and breathables and even things that you don't need to wear. Your connected Wi-Fi and voice can, can give you uh, our, our digital exhaust. So I think we're sort of already there in that era of digital exhaust now being integrated i mean the fact that on my apple iphone i'm having here i have the health kit data and i can integrate things from my scale my blood pressure cuff if i use that if i had a glucometer um, my heart rate data over time so you know when it comes off my watch or an ekg so we're now able to integrate the data more readily it often still lives on our siloed smart devices but we're starting to move from quantified self where you have that as an individual patient to quantified health where it can flow to your medical record what happens when well, I get to your medical records? The second question, um, but that all that potential is really here now. So we have the opportunity to go from quantified self to quantified health, and really use that in a much smarter way to be much more proactive, real time, continuous to optimize prevention and uh, and wellness and health span, and align the incentives for that to optimize early diagnostics. You know, there's a lot of work now in the era of COVID, just using your Fitbit or your Apple Watch to pick up the signs of someone two or three days before they become symptomatic with COVID. So we can identify and hopefully quarantine and maybe even when drugs are available that are prevent preventative or slow the course, give that early rather than late. And then on the therapeutic side, um, now all these new tools for remote patient monitoring, whether it's your, you know, your wearable counting your steps after a hip surgery and seeing if you're doing better or worse all the way to, you know, connective blood pressure cuffs and beyond that can really inform the feedback loop. So we're already there. The trick is some great solutions are out there. How do we really connect the dots, to line incentives and get these things utilized, particularly mindful of the workflow of the clinician who does not want to see every piece of data. They want the meaning from that. They want the, you know, my view of the future of healthcare is if you're a primary care doctor, you have 2,000 patients. uh, You don't want to wait for them to show up you know, with a problem in the ER at two in the morning, you want to have a dashboard of your 2000 patients with those who are in the green, those who are in the yellow, who might have their blood pressures out of whack or haven't been taking their meds or are showing signs of uh, relapsing in some form. Uh, And then those in the red, you really, you know, make sure you're proactive and act upon. And hopefully that's aligned with the incentives for, you know, keeping them out of the hospital and giving them better outcomes.
0: Since you mentioned COVID, there's actually 204 products currently being uh, developed or tested uh, to uh, battle COVID either vaccine or um, as um, a treatment. So in that regard and in everything that you mentioned, how do you think the uh, digital revolution or all the data Oh, and AI cap- capabilities that are now being developed, how can that be used in uh, figuring out how these 204 uh, identified potential um, solutions can be successful or not?
1: We have the, use, the ability and need to use these connected tools, whether it's uh, not even connected, but a pulse oximeter or someone's wearable data to use that in, in, in um, doing early triage, finding folks who are sick, if they happen to even been positive or not even tested to track their data, their respiratory rate, their oxygen saturation, understand when they might need to come into the hospital or or, or not. And so while you know, there's a lot of innovations coming up, some of them may be related to, again, listening to your cough and maybe diagnosing COVID based on the sounds of your, your, your breath or your voice, uh, new ways to track respiratory status. Uh, I think there's tremendous need and and what's been catalyzed in this era are a lot of new solutions. And hopefully we can use digital trials and new ways of collecting data to find the ones that are really working well and then uh, distribute those. We don't need uh, a thousand COVID apps. We need two or three that really work uh, in a connected, integrated way.
0: Yeah, I guess people use various apps. There's definitely a wave of um, options on the market. But like personally, I looked at the Apple's application and what WHO was putting out there, you know, because you want to have reliable information and uh, solutions.
1: Uh So you're talking about like, for example, Apple with the CDC put out a, uh, you know, COVID symptom checker, uh, which can be helpful in helping folks triage themselves. Do they have symptoms consistent with COVID, which in the early days was just, you know, cough, fever, and shortness of breath. Now we know, partly through digital health and collecting data from Thousands of folks that, you know, loss of sense of smell and taste and extreme fatigue and even diarrhea and other symptoms can be uh, emblematic of COVID. It's not just the classic few elements. And so, um, so these sort of tr- triage type tools are relatively basic, but can give smart guidance and hopefully help healthcare systems not be overwhelmed at the same time. I'm actually working on a project right now with a volunteer team to build an app for the WHO, which I sort of thematically think of. And I, as I pitched it to them would be a bit of a, a ways for COVID. Cause when you're getting information about COVID, you want to know it based on your zip code and the right language, uh, potentially eventually give you the testing sites and hospitals that are available around you and uh, how prevalent is the disease in your neighborhood um, and guidance that's related to your country or state. so we're, we're building up the basics of that, which will hopefully uh, be impactful. Information is super important in this pandemic. It's also an infodemic. We have a lot of misinformation out there, whether it's about drugs that are unproven like hydroxychloroquine or the anti-vax movement getting into the mix now. And uh, I think it's going to be a huge challenge when drugs and validated vaccines are available, that in many cases, they may not be used based on um, political or other um, leanings.
0: Um, so the solutions that you mentioned that you are helping develop for WHO, that's meant as a global solution? So it's going to be adapted based on the country or is it more U.S. Uh, focused?
1: The plan is, to, you know, many countries don't have their own apps or, or a CDC uh, type platform. That, uh, you know, this is uh, we're still waiting for official approvals. Uh, and we have a very smart tech team building things out based on what the WHO uh, needs and wants. Um, but uh, the idea is that it would be very hyperlocal, you know, in in the official languages of the WHO, which is I think nine plus many others, um, with eventually very hyperlocal information. You know, partnering with things like Google Maps, which is now putting in testing sites, etc., to having potentially uh, symptom checker-type technologies, which are, are uh, relevant to that setting. It's very different if you're doing uh, a symptom checker in a refugee camp and you don't have the ability to sort of shelter in place and have social or physical isolation, or if you're in a developed, uh, more developed um, setting. So my hope is, whether it's the WHO or others, we'll have more and more smarter, more hyper-personalized tools for COVID-related information and then what to, to do about them. Because as you know, in the digital health space, there are thousands and hun- tens of thousands of quote-unquote digital health apps, um, some of which are now FDA regulated for managing diabetes or mental health, for example, others that are more for on the wellness side of the equation. I think what's going to be interesting is how do we start to have a, a bit of a way of selecting those and personalizing those. I for example, a digital health formulary. So one of my uh, early uh, projects that I recently launched is a website called digital.health. It's literally their domain, digital.health. And uh, my view and vision for that is to become a, a powerful digital health formulary. So if you're a clinician seeing a patient with diabetes and hypertension and smoking and depression, you can find the wearables that might help them. Manage their uh, atrial fibrillation, but also an app to help them with their smoking cessation or their mindfulness training for to help their depression. So we can start to prescribe tools, apps, solutions, wearables, etc. Um, those that hopefully can be paid for by different payers when it's appropriate, and then the data can flow back in a meaningful, useful way to the clinical teams um, and to the patients themselves.
0: I've been hearing uh, from. Some doctors that are in the digital space that uh, among their peers, there's actually not so much knowledge about you know all the possibilities that are discussed in digital health space. So if you're active in the digital health space and if you continuously meet doctorpreneurs and innovators in medicine, you may quickly get an impression that the whole healthcare space is super interested in progress. But um, some data or people suggest that it's actually not like that. So from that perspective, how do you tackle um, onboarding of all the doctors to to go to a site like digital.health and a leverage from all the knowledge that's already been proven to be useful?
1: I mean, we live and believe this sort of space. Um, and I often give, you know, keynotes when we still used to travel and go to real keynotes or even online ones, uh, how many folks who are in the, middle of pharma and med tech and devices and hospital systems have no clue what's here, let alone what's coming. I mean, you know, my friend, Dave Albert invented the alive core EKG. It's amazing. Now you see them on CNN on, on advertisements now, but still many cardiologists and, and primary care docs don't even know about example of an early successful digital health product and a device that you can put on your phone or carry around that can do a full-on- out six lead EKG. um wouldn't you want to prescribe that to your patients who have atrial fibrillation so when they call you at two in the morning with feeling fluttering in their chest or something you can actually capture that data or use it for triage when someone walks into your office for urgent care but many folks just have no clue that uh, there's a whole, whole new sets of of tools and technologies available now yet alone again the future so I think that's part of what I want to do through digital.health is if you log in and you're a, pharma, a pulmonologist or a psychiatrist or a neurosurgeon, you can have a very different set of tools and solutions that have been vetted and are hopefully, you know, when relevant FDA or cleared or CE marked, et cetera, that you can use again as a smart formula, just like when you're trying to pick the right antibiotic for a patient, you'll, you'll base it on their, their age, their weight, their renal function, the uh, antibiotic sensitivities, etc. Um, but I think we have a, a ways to go to help clinicians and align the incentives, because one of the folks, even you know, if you're a cardiologist, you don't want to get the EKG, every EKG from your patient. You might feel liable for that. What if I missed a uh, funny arrhythmia? Uh, who's owning that data? Who, again, might be in trouble for, for not using it? So it may not always be obvious that some of these digital health tools, which have p- tremendous potential, don't fit in with often the workflow or the incentives of often busy and overwhelmed clinicians who don't want another app or platform to have to log into.
0: Uh, I want to address also uh, some of the um, uh, inventions uh, in your portfolio, if I may say so. So in 2018, you presented uh, your company Intelimed on the TED stage. And if I try to sum up the idea, it's um, to have all medications of a patient um, in cartridges. And based on the daily measurements supported by AI analysis, a machine would then produce one pill that the patient would take that day uh, instead of five or ten that an older patient with chronic conditions and comorbidities needs to take that's uh, obviously an inspiring idea but i'm wondering so how far is the development you started developing this already 10 years ago in 2011 uh, there was the first request for the patent which was approved last year right
1: yeah you're way ahead of me uh, good summary i think in general i like to look at you know healthcare and healthcare innovations from the pain point or what's the problem we're looking at uh and so a big challenge across healthcare in general is adherence or low compliance uh meaning patients take a pile of pills you know many older patients especially have a lot of comorbidities are taking aspirin statin beta blocker you know two other hypertension meds uh maybe a, a vitamin d and so we have polypharmacy and folks have a problem, 50% of medications aren't taken as prescribed, partly because often there's too many meds. And then they're not adjusted to the individual, you know, based on their weight or renal function or eventually pharmacogenomics. So the idea around in telemedicine is not to print all your medications, but let's start with the common generics that are for very common diseases like diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease in general. And so that we can um, ideally give you all three of your blood pressure meds in one that is a adapted to your needs and your side effect profile and your blood pressure itself. Um, so that was the initial idea yeah, that I had 10 years ago, filed the IP, which finally issued. Uh, as you saw my TED Talk, we have our sort of prototype printer. Um, that's sort of the kind that you might have in a corner pharmacy um, that maybe you could do a pill every second. Um, we've now built a smaller prototype of a, one that might be eventually in the home. So you get a little cartridge of the five or 10 meds you're on. It would blend the medications that you need. Based on your digital data, it might be your blood pressure, it might be your mood, it might be a blood level. So now we're in the process of building next generation uh, devices and hopefully we'll get something into a a clinical setting and show that for, again, starting with something as common as hypertension, this could be effective and lower costs and improve outcomes and make, again, healthcare much more tailored and, and feedback loop driven.
0: What is the regulatory side of such a solution? Every medication needs to go through um, rigorous clinical trials. I mean, how rigorous are clinical trials going to be in the future might be quite tested with the COVID 19 vaccine development. New York Times uh, revealed that if the vaccine would be developed uh, in a normal way, it would be on the market, I think, in 2036. And we're talking about uh, having it in a year. So I'm sure some things might change after this pandemic ends. But in your case, so creating a personalized pill, how do you test that if each pill is different for each patient because it's personalized?
1: In a sense, we're not reinventing the drugs at all. We're starting with very common generics that have been used for often decades. So, and it's really, you know, when you take your pile of pills together you don't need to do a trial to say can you take there's certainly obviously some rules and guidelines you don't take a beta blocker with an alpha agonist or whatever it might be and uh but essentially we're already taking multiple medications together the trick um, essentially also the practice of medicine and pharmacy is compounding you're able to in the practice of most of medicine in most countries and states uh blend uh medicines together with mortar and pestle and put into a single capsule that's the practice of compounding so essentially in telemedicine is really automated, roboticized, personalized compounding where we're going to blend already approved medications that are able to be taken together into a single capsule um, and that can be adjusted. So you don't need to do a trial if that personalized medication is built specifically for you um, and not putting it on the shelf as a you know combination hypertensive drug that can be taken, you know, by that's manufacturing. But again, in telemedicine is really the sort of future, I think, of personalized compounding, starting with existing already-approved drugs, where you can never do a clinical trial for every single combination, every single dose. That's, that's not realistic, but we would know that these drugs have already been taken already been taken together, and um, hopefully then we can match and optimize the doses, which in the end, I'm quite confident will lower side effects, thousands and potentially more patients die every year for adverse drug reactions because they may be on the wrong dose or the wrong combination. And it's not just about, quote, unquote, printing the combination of medication. I think we have the need to use our new tools of AI, machine learning, omics, et cetera, even the microbiome can affect what drugs work, what drug, is, what drug dose is effective, to help pick the, uh, the right combination and doses of medications as well, not just the drugs themselves
0: one uh, thought that I also had when I was thinking about this is uh, just the fact that there's still uh, some unknown uh, side effects when you combine the drugs. You know, we know about the drug-to-drug interactions, but we don't still know about potential interactions or side effects that um, come from um, combinations of drugs. If I try to be a little bit more specific, uh, in 2015, uh, Russ Altman had a TED talk where he explained how how glucose changing signals uh, showed up uh, with the big data analysis for people taking antidepressants and cholest- uh, cholesterol medicine, and that was not known uh, before that. So, you know, from that perspective, and from the fact that we still might not know what a combination of drugs might uh, do, and on top of that, knowing that new medications um, are already cocktails of drugs. So, how do you ensure that you're gonna have a useful? pill uh, that's printed, let's say for a patient that's diabetic with uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, potentially insomnia, it's taking uh, painkillers because he has a headache and gets a cancer diagnosis with potentially an immunotherapy or uh, a genetic
1: therapy? Great question. Number number one, uh, we need to learn better about the real world of, of patients taking medications. Most trials are done in very narrow, limited ways. You cannot have a patient who is obese or has a uh, renal disease or has cancer, or other comorbidities. So a lot of these drugs are are trialed and approved on very narrow criteria, not quote, unquote, the real world examples. And as Russ and others have shown, you can learn that certain drugs in the context of folks taking, uh, I don't know, osteop- osteopenia med or antidepressant can have untoward um, potential side effects. So I think outside of the context of even in telemedicine, whether you're printing your medicines or not, we can start to now crowdsource a lot of this data um, using hopefully unsiloed EMR data and and interoperability to really learn that at scale. And and hopefully what we'll learn is, whether it's through this telemedicine platform or others, what doses and combinations in the real world are impactful and we can collect that real world data, whether that's side effect profiles, other physiologies, blood levels, we can then you take take that kind of crowdsourced information and use that to better build the algorithms that choose the the ink, you know, the, what we print or the, the, the medications we print, whether it's in a pinch of pill or the pills that you take in general. And back to even the year of COVID, um, it may need just like an HIV, a cocktail of drugs that, that match because we know the issues of drugs incurring um Resistance. We often need, as we learned in HIV, a cocktail. And many of the successful drugs, are, there are cocktails, heart therapy. And so it may be that the future of COVID will be needing to take that sort of cocktail. And that might need to be tuned very specifically to that patient's age, weight, renal function, pharmacogenomics, et cetera. And so I think the future of medicine can be much brighter when we do share all this information across the silos of pharma and academia and, and hospital systems and uh, PBMs so that we can collect that data in almost real time and then have that translate to real world actionability
0: the whole uh, field of medications and the pharma industry is definitely very, very complicated. Apart from uh, taking into account everything that we discussed, there's also routes of administration. So do you think it will ever be possible to combine uh, medication that needs to be given subcutaneously, intravenously, a rectal medication, an oral medication, or we could go on with what kind of options we have when we're talking about uh, medications?
1: I mean, Clearly, um, there's a lot of work to try and make what used to be an IV drug, oral. Uh, There's a really interesting uh, company here in the San Francisco Bay Area that has a little, almost a robotic pill. This is for drugs that normally are are biologics and need to be given IV or subcutaneously. Um, It's called uh, RANI, R-A-N-I, and they built a little pill that you ingest and when it's in the right part of the gut based on pH. It basically is little spikes that come out and inject the biologic drug into the gut wall where it can be adjusted that we avoid someone having to go in and get an IV infusion, uh, in the, in the outpatient se- or, the, or the clinic setting. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of blending patches, uh, have been looked at. You might imagine the, f- the future of, of drug therapy, maybe it's hypertension or mental health is in a, a connected patch that looks at your data and releases drugs at the right time based on a whole set of parameters. Um, You know, we have a sliding scale for insulin, but that's basically it for most drugs. I think we'll hopefully see that kind of connected ability to really deliver the drug, whether it's through an implanted device. Uh, Electricity as medicine is another approach to neuroelectrics.
0: Music can also be a medicine.
1: Sure. There's uh, what companies like BioBeats and others where you can use medicine music to uh, help people's brains and focus, uh, all the way to helping in rehab from, from COPD to CHF to uh, diabetes, uh, getting folks to move, to get engaged, uh, you know, the impact of our mental health on our physical health, uh, is all, uh, tied together. And, you know, part of the potential of digital connected mobile health is to sort of more be more holistic and connect those dots rather than the usual siloed drug, you know? That often use the word beyond the pill. You need to have that sort of digital wrapper around that, which might tie not just to the, the, the molecule itself, but all the other elements in that individual's life, ranging from their diet to their social interactions.
0: Going a little bit back to the basics of what IntelliMed is trying to achieve, which is make it easier for patients that are taking maybe five to 10 drugs to um adhere to the therapies that are prescribed to them i can say from my own experience uh, in the past when i had to take that uh, amount of uh, medications i actually had a, a notebook where i wrote all the medications and just ticked what i took because if i didn't by the time i came to pill number 5 i wasn't sure anymore what i've already taken and, and what i still have to uh, what i still have to take so um the idea of having a printer that would print out one pill is uh, absolutely um, inspiring. But um, do you think it's possible that it would turn out in the end that uh, it's uh, impossible to come to a solution like IntelliMed, you know, similarly as Theranos um, had an amazing idea, but it turned out in the end that uh, many uh, professionals said that it's not uh, biologically possible to achieve that kind of a solution.
1: Uh, well, Theranos is a totally different issue. I mean, they were basically yeah, I technology. I, I think with if we're talking about IntelliMedicine, you know, we start simple. We're starting with common generic drugs, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers for hypertension, it might be your baby aspirin, it might be your statin, uh, We're not. Uh, it, it might be a little bit of vitamin D or CoQ10 if you need that. So these are medicines that have been taken for decades safely that we're already combining in millions of patients. We're just making it an easier form factor and the ability uh-huh. when it's relevant to adjust the dosing. And if you saw the Ted talk and the technology, it's pretty straightforward. We're, we're sorting, sorting Michael and micromeds, you know, one or two milligrams each. So, um, the, it's not a magical leap. And speaking of Theranos, um, the promise of what they pitched, uh, you know, 10 plus 20, you know, 10, 15 years ago, even now is now reality. There's several groups, which unfortunately have been harmed by their Theranos, uh, debacle that can do labs on a chip or use your smartphone camera for diagnostics. I'm on the board of a company called Healthy IO out of Israel. They use your smartphone camera to take a picture of your urine dipstick and now can do detailed urinalysis or pick up protein in your urine. They're also using the smartphone camera to analyze, you know, wounds in a, in a, a wound care type setting when a visiting nurse comes in. So there's lots of new ways that is bringing, you know, diagnostics from the lab setting to um, uh, to, to the home that are, are, are now being proven out. And um, the, the challenge is to connect... The incentives, how we pay for things, who adopts them, uh, getting into the workflow of, of the nurse, the doctor, the pharmacist—that's often the harder barrier.
0: How fast do you think the the solution could be uh, available on the market? Uh, the old saying was that um, any new healthcare innovation takes around fifteen years to become a standard in clinical practice. Do you see any changes in that time span with big data and yeah. you know AI?
1: I mean, we're seeing already in our era of COVID just in the last three months, the acceleration of telehealth, the acceleration of of certain uh, approaches, uh, even just learning, like what was learned in Wuhan, China, and in Italy in the ICU units quickly translated um, to uh, being utilized in New York City, you know, and learnings there are transmitted to other places. So we're hopefully catalyzing and speeding up the, um, the pathway of learning and it's not waiting 18 years from publication to standard of care. Uh, and that's going to apply to especially to digital health-related solutions. Not necessarily always in molecules. We're seeing the speeding up, obviously, in vaccines. Uh, and there's a downside to that too. I mean, there have been definitely vaccines that have been developed for things like dengue fever that had antibody-dependent um, uh, reactions, where you could have a, a worse outcome if the strain changes or the immune system uh, takes off in the wrong way. So um, I, I know we're all on a rush to get a COVID vaccine and other therapeutics, but. Uh, we do need to be mindful that, you know, you can't make a baby with nine women in nine in one month. Uh, some things still take the, the time to look at the, the downstream course. But I'm very confident that, particularly in our now uber-connected digital big data age, we can accelerate, you know, learnings, uh, trials that can be increasingly done at, at home. Um, and and when those uh, things are well-proven, uh, distribute those to impact in, in a faster way because it has been uh, int- sometimes intrinsically very slow. <laughs>
0: Because you are one of the healthcare leaders that are following all the technological progress uh, most closely, is there anything that you can mention that you are most optimistic about in, let's say, the short run when it comes to healthcare? Maybe this can also be a comment on how healthcare uh, around the world has changed, as they say, more in a month or two when COVID hit, than it did in the last 20 years.
1: So, one of the things I'm most excited about, I think it's emerged in this COVID era and has been accelerated, is now connecting other dots, remote patient monitoring, which even started to get reimbursed in the last year or so under a setting of Medicare in the United States. Now, you can have a connected sensor pick up respiratory status, and uh, that might be relevant in COPD, but also in somebody. Uh, who's diagnosed with COVID uh, or a connected pulse oximeter, and and potentially use that to to monitor a patient uh, and and triage them appropriately. So I think that's sort of that now blend going beyond telemedicine, meaning where I can see you on the screen, you can see me, we have some chit chat. I'm um, going to hopefully have much more contextual information that asynchronous data, meaning the data collected from my smartwatch and smart home and digital scale and bupershikov can hopefully inform that that connected care visit, so that you're not just popping up on the screen, but I know. What that patient's context have been? What's with what their resting heart rate? Uh, what their temperatures might have been? What's happened to their weight? Have they been taking their medications or not? So, all that some of those dots are starting to connect. Um, still, long way to go, but that's one of the things I think is a bit of a positive coming out of this, uh, you know, major crisis.
0: Are you as a doctor worried uh, about reopening uh, states in the U.S. too soon?
1: Absolutely. I think uh, you know it's not just about reopening, but we have. Uh, some folks, uh, maybe driven by ideological things that are going and having big parties and going back to bars, like nothing happened and not wearing masks or, uh, you know, assaulting people who do, uh, there's lots of different mindsets based on where you are and even political parties. So there's a real danger about not just this, uh, you know, this, this, uh, political divide and this infodemic I mentioned earlier, where there's, um, misaligned, um, interests at play. I think, I'm concerned we are, yes, opening up too early. We still have in many states no downward trend, but we're opening up the beaches and bars and tanning salons and tattoo parlors. And I totally understand there's a a need to open up the economy at the same time uh, in smart ways, but I think it can go and it's gonna boomerang and bite us in certain places, which will hurt the economy and the recovery um, if we opened up too soon in the wrong way um, and without some of the proper testing available, because we still are behind in the US especially, on the ability to get rapid testing, uh, both for you know acute disease and then on folks who might show recovery from, from antibody-based immune testing.
0: Okay, so uh, yeah, that's kind of a, a depressing ending.
1: Well, I would also say, let me be more optimistic, that um, you know, digital health, which we're talking about here, uh, vaccine development, uh, new forms of doing uh, uh, creative clinical care, I, have, I found a slide the other day on Twitter. Um, the summary is, um, who led the digital transformation of your company? A, the CEO, B, the CTO, or C, COVID-19? So and there's that Chinese proverb about crisis also being the same word as opportunity. Um, it's a big opportunity to catalyze positive changes, and to illuminate some of the big gaping challenges like social disparities um, and ways healthcare systems and supply chains haven't worked. Um, so that crisis creates opportunity now to collaborate in new ways. I haven't seen so much collaboration happening um, in new international and cross uh, uh, industry ways ever. I'm chairing the prizes Pandemic Alliance Task Force, and we have 60 plus organizations from NGOs and academics to big companies, to startups, all collaborating together to, find commonalities and find challenge areas or ways to meet needs in smarter, better ways. So I think there's a lot of good things that are going to come out of this. That's a bit of the silver lining. And hopefully we build a better, smarter public health system around the world that can prevent the next pandemic. An idea that I have along with my med school roommate and colleague, uh, Lee Sanders, who's the chair of pediatrics at Stanford, is could we have a kind of global health core? uh, Volunteers, just like EMT, you know, ambulance drivers and firemen volunteers in many towns. You don't have a professional... Firehouse, you have folks who are volunteers, they show up when the bell rings. Could we train folks up, just like we train people in CPR, train them in basic contact tracing, which is starting to happen, but give them digital tools and others to upskill them, community health workers, not just to do contact tracing and help uh, triage in the in the setting of a pandemic or an epidemic, but to be addressing social uh, determinants and, and disparities in smarter ways. And uh, that could be a powerful potential um, platform around the world to to prevent the neck p- pandemics, but also address public health uh, and other elements at their base.
0: Just one last question for the fans of exponential medicine, I assume there is a chance that the live event or gathering is not going to happen this year uh, in November, do you already have any plans uh, in that regard or do you still hope that maybe by some miracle uh, it could happen?
1: Uh. I'd like to believe in miracles, but I don't think anyone's gonna be, even if we have a vaccine next month, uh, that we won't have it distributed well. People aren't gonna be back to traveling. Many healthcare uh, companies, hospital systems have been devastated. I think it's gonna be a bit of a slow restart, particularly around healthcare. I mean, we've lost, I think, $50 billion across hospitals just in the United States. but I do plan to have some sort of uh, online virtualized event, and there's many new ways to make those much more engaging than just being on Zoom. So, some uh, watch the space. Uh, you can follow me uh, at DanielCraftMD.net and on Twitter at, at Daniel underscore Craft, um, and we'll we'll have some new uh, new form of exponential medicine or a, a new rebirth of of how do we really bring together leading clinicians, innovators, technologists, investors, patients, nurses, healthcare systems to really think about what's next in healthcare. How do we catalyze the future of health and medicine, not just in digital, but across the whole spectrum, because we really need that kind of convergence now to um, address this pandemic, but also um, other major challenges uh, that are, are global.
0: You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you liked the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhelp.com. And of course, stay tuned!